Hey, it's me, Annie, and this is the Annie Fox Show. This is the first episode of what I hope to be several different hours of entertainment for all of you, and food facts, and recipes, and stories from my life. So I figure I better start out with stories from my life, because you got to know who I am. And to really start properly, I have to start with my parents, because that's the beginning. So my mom had measles. She was 12 years old. And in those days, doctors came to your house when you were sick. So my grandmother got the eligible, fabulous, handsome doctor in the neighborhood to come and make a house call and treat my mom for the measles. And he showed up and walked into the door of my mom's room she was lying there with a fever and feeling poorly, and she looked at him as he walked through the door and flipped out and was very, very quiet the whole time he was there examining her. And my grandmother saw that things were a little bit odd, but she kept quiet, and as soon as the doctor left, she came back into the room and my mom said, Ma, That man is my husband. And my grandmother said, what are you talking about? And my mother said, that's my husband. Dr. Fox is my husband. I know it. He's my husband. And my grandmother said, what are you talking about? You're 12 years old. He's your doctor. You have a fever. You're hallucinating. And my mom said, no, he's my husband. Now, my mom was pretty sure about this, and so she figured out every way she could to be there when my father was walking down the street, or when he was walking up to his office, or when he was going home. She would be walking right there, too. And she would say, hey, Dr. Fox, hi. And he would tip his hat to her, and he would nod to her. And as she got older... She kept on finding other ways to get his attention. One of the things was she was the oldest of five kids, and so she would be there when he came to visit to treat any of her brothers and sisters. And she would do little devious things, like one time she left out a psychology book on a sideboard. And he walked in, and he saw the psychology book, and he said, Who's reading this? And she popped up and said, I am Dr. Fox. And he said, you're interested in psychology? And she said, yes, absolutely. I, I am very interested in psychology. Very interesting book. Should make up stuff. And my father sort of read her pretty clearly. He knew that she was trying to get his attention. It was pretty obvious. But it was a pretty serious book that she had picked. She didn't pick any pedestrian psychology book. She picked a a real psychology book. And so he sort of looked at her differently after that. And eventually, after years and years of being walking down the street when he was walking down the street and hanging out when he was coming home and all of those little devious girl crush things, she wangled her way a job in his office. Now, Once she started working in his office, she ran the desk. She must have been about 17, 18 years old. And 
he would have women that he went out with call up and want to speak to him. And she would be pretty devious about that, too. And she would make sure that they didn't get a chance to because he was hers in her mind. But he went out with fabulously beautiful women because he was a doctor and he was young and he was handsome and he was a good catch. One time, there was one woman that my mom was really nervous about because she was extra beautiful and extra statuesque and kept on showing up at the office. And my father would take her out to dinner and my father would bring her to the opera and do all kinds of fancy things with her. And my mom was fuming. So one day, she knew that it was in his appointment calendar that he was going to be going out with her that evening. And she decided on a plan, which was if anybody called the office to make an appointment for their child, because my father was a pediatrician, she would encourage them to come immediately. And so she stacked up all his appointments at the end of the day. Now this beautiful woman showed up and sat in the waiting room. And my mom kept on bringing in more and more patients, and that would delay my father. And my mom kept on being happier and happier, and this woman kept on being angrier and angrier. And finally, it was time to go. And they were about an hour late. And my father looked at my mom and said, you know, let's give you a ride home, which made the woman even angrier because it was delaying their date even further. But she acquiesced and they got into the car and were driving towards my mom's house. And my father said, you know what, to the woman, he said, I'm going to drop you off at this party and I'm going to then take Miriam around and drop her at her house and I'll come back and meet you at the party. And the woman was furious. And she said, why are you doing this? This is ridiculous. I've been waiting for hours for you to get finished with all your patients. And now you just drop me off at a party and you're going to take your receptionist home. What is this? What are you doing? And he said, look, when you're a doctor, doctoring comes first. I had to see my patients. So if you're going to be involved in a doctor... If you're going to be going out with me, you have to understand my patience comes first, being a doctor comes first, and then anything else I do comes afterwards. And if you don't like it, take hike. And the woman got out and went to the party, and my father turned to my mom and said, so, where do you want to go? And that was their first date. She was 18, and they started going out. She was of age. Because he realized he couldn't avoid it any longer, and he always took a shine to her anyway. And so she was old enough to go out, and they went out. And eventually they got married. And they had planned on having a very large family because my mom really wanted a lot of kids. And my father, being a pediatrician, wanted a lot of kids too. And so my mom got pregnant. And she miscarried. She got pregnant again, miscarried. She miscarried seven times before my oldest sister was born. And then she didn't get pregnant for another four years, and then my middle sister was born. And then she didn't get pregnant for 11 years. 
Now, my father, having been her pediatrician, was obviously older than her. And so the thought was maybe she wasn't going to be having any more children because he was 18 years older. And maybe it wasn't going to happen. Then all of a sudden, 11 years after her last child, she got pregnant again. And she was overjoyed. And she was praying for a boy, and everything was going great, and no problems. And then in late in the fifth month, I think it was five and a half months, she got um, a really wrong feeling about what was happening and promptly miscarried and was devastated because at five and a half months you can see the child. It's a real child. And she could see that it was a boy and she was inconsolable. And my father was very, very sad, of course, because this was really an incredible opportunity, incredible chance, an incredible miracle for both of them. But he kept his eye on her because he saw her sinking into a kind of depression that was disproportionate to the loss. And she became very silent, wouldn't talk to him about anything, was grieving so deeply. And finally, one day he said to her, you know, you really have to talk to me about what's going on because I see that you're incredibly sad and you're incredibly quiet and I know that whatever is going on will be better if you speak about it. Now by this time in his career, my father had gone back to school and he'd become a psychiatrist. And so psychiatrically speaking, he could see that there were mental issues that were going on with my mom that she wasn't speaking up about. And he tried to get her to talk, and she wouldn't talk, and she wouldn't talk. And finally, one day, she broke down, and she said, I'm dying. And he said, what are you talking about? You look wonderful. You don't present as a person that's dying. You may feel so sad that you may feel like you're dying. He said, no, 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 I'm really dying. I have a tumor. He said, where, where do you have a tumor? He said, I, I'll, I'll help you. I'm a doctor. Just... Tell me, tell me where the tumor is. She said, I can't talk about it. It's horrible. I, I can't talk about it. He said, I will bring you to a doctor, and we will have you examined, and we will find out exactly what's going on. So that's what he did. He brought her to a, a female gynecologist, and there were rarely female gynecologists in that day and age, but he brought her to one, and the woman examined her, and said, well, I'm really, really sorry for your loss, and I know you must be devastated, but there's also good news. And my mom said, what's that? And she said, well, there's another baby in there, and it appears to be extremely healthy and extremely vital, and you're going to have a child, And my mom said, what are you talking about? She said, that tumor that you thought you had, that's a child. And that was me. So I was born. I was born. And my brother had been miscarried at five and a half months. Well, I was born full term. And I remember being born. And this is something that when I was a child, 
I thought everybody remembered. And in fact, it was a generalized assumption on my part that any of my life experiences as a child were the same as everybody's life experiences. And so I took it for granted that my friends also remembered being born. And I used to talk to my friends about being born and get blank stares. And the conversation dropped pretty quick. So I stopped talking about it. But I remember being born. I remember the feeling of being born. I remember the room that I was born in, in Manhattan General Hospital. I remember the clock on the wall, which is a strange thing to remember, but I remembered looking at the clock. And my first sense when I was born was, I forgot about this. I forgot that it was like this. I forgot what it felt like to be in a body. I forgot what it felt like to feel air on your skin. I forgot what it felt like to feel uncomfortable. I forgot what all these things felt like, but I also forgot that you have to be a baby first. I forgot you have to be a baby again. I forgot that you can't talk. I forgot that you can't say what you need. I forgot that you can't have fabulous conversations with people. I forgot all of that. And here I am back again, and now I have to do that. I have to be a baby. Now, as I said, I assumed everybody knew this. And maybe someplace inside them everybody does. But nobody that was a friend of mine at that time (laughs) had any of those experiences forward in their mind to be able to talk about. So I spent quite a while being by myself. In the beginning, of course, when I was an infant, I was in a crib, which I thought was a jail. And when I was old enough to be able to pull myself up on the bars, I used to pace it like it was a jail. I used to walk around and around and around in the rectangle of the crib all the time I was in it. At night, when my parents were asleep in the same room, I used to stare at a cuckoo clock on the wall, and I used to pace my life based on when the cuckoo would pop out. And each time the cuckoo popped out, I would be happy because I knew that I was that much older, a little bit older than I was from the last time it popped out, and a little bit closer to getting out of the crib, getting out of jail as I felt. Now, I didn't know any of this story until I was pregnant with my daughter. And while I was pregnant, my mom said, you know... I have to talk to you about something. You could have twins. And I said, what are you talking about? And she said, you could have twins. I said, where are the twins in the family? Don't you have to have twins in the family to have twins? And she said, well, you're a twin. And that's when the whole thing came spilling out. And so she told me how much it freaked her out to give birth to me because she really didn't believe that I was real. But at the same time, she thought I was like the biggest miracle that could ever happen and the most magical. But she had trouble letting go and just parenting me because she was still in awe of the fact that it had ever occurred. And she said there was one thing on top of that that made her flip out and she still hadn't recovered. And I said, what was that? Now that you're telling me things, tell me that too. She said, well, it was something you did. I said, what did I do that flipped you out that you're still flipped out about? 
And she said, well, I was leaning over your crib. And you were putting your lips together and you were making a sound. Mm, and I said, and? Was it my first word? She said, no, no, be quiet. I'm going to tell you a story. She said, so I see you saying, mm, making the sound. And I start saying to you, Mama, are you going to say Mama? And I kept on going, mm, and she said, Mama, Mommy, Mom, Ma. And I just kept on going, and she said, come on, you can say it, you can say it. And I looked at her, and I said, clear as day, myself. And she said, babies don't talk like that, Annie. You said the word, myself. That's a compound word. That was your first word. It wasn't mama, it wasn't daddy, it wasn't any of those normal things that a baby does. You said myself. She said, I've been waiting all these years to tell you this story, and I've been waiting all these years to ask you, why did you say myself? And I looked at her and I said, Mom, I said, I knew who you were. Why would I tell you who you were? I told you who I was. I was myself. It's like if an alien comes to Earth. Same thing. They don't tell you who you are. They tell you who they are. And she said, oh, that really doesn't make it easier. <laughs> she said, that really doesn't help me. But that was me, myself. So one of my nicknames as a child was myself, myself. Anyway, there'll be more stories. I got a million of them. I've had a very unusual life thinking that it was the same life that everybody had the whole time. But only when I got to be an adult did I realize that the life that I was having was indeed very unusual. And the stuff that podcasts are made of. So I'm going to be telling stories for quite a while. I'm also, besides being myself, I'm also vegan. And I've been vegan for, I would say, close to 34, 35 years. I was first a vegetarian. I became vegetarian when I was 21. But I became vegan later. And the kind of vegan that I am is what I tend to call old school vegan. When veganism began, there weren't a lot of vegan products. There weren't a lot of things that you could buy that were pre-made. There weren't any shortcut foods. There weren't a lot of snacks around. Vegans had to be really committed to making their own food, making their own delectables, making their own desserts. I remember when soy milk first came on the market, it was a cottage industry. And you had to be lucky to find it, and it tasted god-awful. tasted like just raw beans. And nobody really liked it. It wasn't delicious at all. So when I became vegan, what I did was I started making a lot of things and figuring out how to make a lot of things. And I became very adept at it. And a lot of the recipes that I'm going to share with you are recipes that I've been making for probably as long as I've been vegan because there weren't products around that fulfilled the needs of a person that wanted to have delicious, wonderful food as well as vegan food. So we'll talk more about being vegan, 
but I'll also make sure to give you some delectable dishes that you can make and some little food additives that you can bring into your diet and keep in your pantry that will enliven your dishes. So, to begin with, vegan ingredients. Ah, there are some things I can't do without. There are some things I have to have a constant supply of, either on my pantry shelf or in my refrigerator, and I'm going to talk about a couple of those today. So, not only will you be able to buy them, but I'll also give recipes at the end so that you'll be able to know how to use them better. And once you have these things in your house, once you start using these things in your kitchen, you'll never want to be without them either. First thing is something that I call the elixir of life, which is umeboshi vinegar. In fact, umeboshi in and of itself is probably one of the elixirs of life. It is a cure-all. It is an incredibly healing food. Umeboshi is actually, even though it's called a pickled plum, it's actually an apricot. And this is a Japanese product where the apricot is taken and salted and layered with what are called beefsteak or perilla leaves, shiso leaves. And those give the omoboshi plum a kind of purpley color, which is wonderful. Um, you can buy omoboshi in the actual plum form, or you can buy it as a paste, or you can buy it as the vinegar. I have all of them in my house at all times. The umeboshi plum is wonderful to chew a little piece of if you have any digestive disturbance. The umeboni, uh, umeboshi, excuse me, umeboshi vinegar, the umeboshi vinegar is a wonderful seasoning. It's incredible to use to make a dressing. All you need to do really is make a mixture of umeboshi vinegar and olive oil and add some chopped up fresh herbs and you have a delicious vinaigrette dressing. Or you can use it to season, as I do, spaghetti sauce or other sauces that you make or stews or um you can use it actually in the summertime. You can put a couple of drops of it in iced tea and it's very refreshing, but it alkalinizes, and that's one of the reasons why it's considered a very healing food. It's a very alkalinizing food, so any illnesses or discomforts that are caused by excess acidity can be healed through the use of umeboshi, either as the umeboshi plum, the umeboshi paste, or the umeboshi vinegar. Omoboshi paste is incredible on fresh corn. And so the way that a lot of people put butter on hot corn, in our family we use a little slathering of omoboshi paste. And it counterpoints the sweetness of the corn, makes it even more delectable. It's very hard to stop eating it. Really, really good tasting. Today I'm going to talk about something to do with omoboshi vinegar, which is a ubiquitous recipe in our house, which is something that I call chickpea miso drizzle or ume drizzle. Chickpea miso is another ingredient. Chickpea miso is something I am never without in my fridge, and anyone that's near a fairway store can usually pick it up 
in the refrigerated case in Fairway where they have the other misos. It's a miso that's not made with soy. And I know that this is a whole other conversation. There are a lot of people that say that soy is really bad for you and some kind of hormonal problems come from it. And I I don't want to get into that today, but be that as it may, anybody that's sensitive about using soy or wanting to avoid soy can use the chickpea miso and get the benefits of miso without having any soy at all. Chickpea miso is a fermented paste made of chickpeas and a koji starter, which is the fermentation starter that is added to the chickpeas, and salt, pure sea salt. And it's allowed to age and ferment. And it becomes this lovely, sweet, salty mixture that is great in a myriad of recipes. But the recipe today, the chickpea miso or ume drizzle, it serves as the creaminess and the lusciousness in the recipe. And the other two ingredients, really, besides umeboshi vinegar, chickpea miso, a little bit of water and a little bit of olive oil, uh, the only other ingredient besides that is love and care. And then it makes it taste delicious. This is how you make it. You can take a walnut-sized dollop of chickpea miso, and I usually use one of my old Fire King measuring cups to do this in. I have a whole set of old Fire King measuring cups, and the littlest one, which is a one-cup measure, is a really good one to use. So I put a walnut-sized little dollop of the chickpea miso in the bottom of that. I shake over that uh, about a teaspoon of umeboshi vinegar, and I take a small dessert fork, and I start mixing those up together, and I add enough water to make it so that it's the consistency of a thin sour cream or a thin yogurt. And then while I'm still stirring it, I start adding some olive oil. I add the equivalent of uh, either anywhere from a teaspoon to a tablespoon of olive oil, and I keep on stirring that up. And what you wind up with is you wind up with a drizzle that you can pour over steamed vegetables or toss steamed vegetables in. And it's one of the most delicious things you've ever had. Now, you can make it thinner than I said, or you can even make it thicker than I said, but keep to those ingredients. Keep to similar proportions. Maybe add a little bit more water, a little bit less water, but depending on what vegetables you're pouring it over, you may decide that, let's say, if you're making steamed yellow squash that has a lot of fluid in it anyway, you'd want to make a thicker chickpea miso drizzle. Or if you are serving it over asparagus, you'd want to make it a little bit thicker. But if you were serving it over a drier vegetable, like broccoli, steamed broccoli, you would want to make it a little bit thinner. So you decide, because you know best. You know what you like better than I know what you like. But chickpea miso drizzle is awesome. So again, all you need for that, the two new things that you need for that are chickpea miso and umeboshi vinegar. Chickpea miso, my favorite brand, 
is Miso Master, chickpea miso, and that's the one you'll find in Fairway. Omoboshi Vinegar, my favorite brand is really Eden, although when I'm really fortunate, I can find some of the more exotic Japanese organic brands, and I love those two. Those are my favorites when I can find them, but they're not as common. And I think Eden as a company is an extraordinary company. Talking about Eden a little bit more, a lot of people now are eating quinoa for the first time. And some of you out there like it and some of you don't. But I can tell you that the reason why it's possible that you don't like it is because you've never eaten it made correctly. And I'm here to tell you how to make it correctly. But I'm also here to tell you that it does make a difference which one you buy as your raw quinoa. And my favorite brand is Eden for that. They make the best packaged quinoa. The reason why it's the best is because they actually sort it and wash it before you get it. One of the problems with quinoa is that there's a soapy exterior to the little grains that needs to be washed off. And most people make it without doing that, number one. But most companies deliver it to you as a dried product, having never washed it. And I think it's better if it's washed when you get it, and then you still have to wash it again. So what I do is, and this is a recipe for uh, using a cup of quinoa, which will probably, uh, I would say, feed three people or two people with leftovers. If you use a cup of quinoa, you have to put it in a sieve and you have to wash it really carefully under running water or you can put the sieve in a larger bowl and you can run water through it and pick up the quinoa in the sieve out of the water and have it drain. But you need to wash it through a couple of times to make sure that none of that soapy exterior still clings to the grains. Once you've done that, let it drain out a little bit, put a small amount of canola oil, organic canola oil, or sunflower oil, or organic safflower oil, in a pan that you have with a lid, and add the quinoa to the pan, and pan toast it in that little bit of canola oil until it starts to smell delicious. Now the first smell that you smell from the quinoa will smell like quinoa, or what you've been accustomed to think of quinoa as smelling like. But once you've started toasting a little bit over a medium flame, it'll start to smell delicious. Almost a little popcorn-y in a funny way. And once you've done that, and it should only take about two, three minutes to do it. Once you've done that, please take it off the flame and add a cup and a half of another product that I always have in my pantry called No Chicken Broth that's made by Imagine Foods. No Chicken Broth is the equivalent of a very dense, rich vegetable broth. It doesn't actually taste like chicken broth. It tastes like a rich vegetable broth, but it it will fit the bill with any recipe where you would normally use chicken broth. And as vegan, I don't use chicken broth. I use no chicken broth. So if you measure out a cup and a half of no chicken broth and you add it to the quinoa, then 
all you need to do is bring it to a boil, put the lid on, turn it right down to what I would say a low flame would be, and cook it for the equivalent of 20 minutes on a very low flame. Now, I just realized that I omitted something from the recipe, so please forgive me. What I omitted is while I'm stirring around and toasting the quinoa, what I do is I shake a good two or three shakes of a product called Herbamoir, which is made by a company named Vogel. I shake the Herbamoir over it, and I sear the Herbamoir into the quinoa as I'm toasting it. And then again, when I add the no chicken broth, I add another good shake of the Herbamoir. Herbamoir is an incredible herbal sea salt combination. What they do is they make it by layering sea salt with organic herbs, many different organic herbs. There's actually a second product that Vogel makes called Trocomor, which is supposed to be more peppery, but I can't really taste an enormous difference between the two products. So if you can't find Herbamoir and you can find Trocomor, please feel free to substitute it. Again, when you're first toasting the quinoa in a little bit of canola oil, you put the two or three shakes of Herbamoir over it. The reason why you do that and you stir that around is because it sears a kind of deliciousness into the quinoa, which goes into the center of the quinoa grain. So that once you've actually added the no chicken broth and you season it again and you boil it down, it tastes amazing. The last thing I do before serving the quinoa, after it's done, I keep the lid on for five minutes, then I take the lid off and I put a couple of chunks of earth balance organic spread over it. And when I say a couple of chunks, I mean pieces of earth balance from the container that are the size, again, maybe of um, a teaspoon, but I will add about five of them. So maybe five teaspoons of earth balance. And then I put the lid back on again and let that melt into the quinoa. And five minutes later, after it's melted in, I'll take a big tongued fork and I'll stir it up so that it's fluffy. And I'll serve that. And it's the best quinoa anybody ever had. And I promise you it'll be the best quinoa you've ever made. So those are a couple of recipes and also a couple of ingredients. So now you've learned how to make quinoa. You've learned how to make chickpea miso drizzle. And you've learned how to um, use omoboshi in general, so that there are probably things that you already make, as I said, like spaghetti sauce, that you can season with omoboshi and make even more delectable. And of course, you can make miso soup with the chickpea miso, because once you've tasted it, you'll realize that it's probably your favorite taste in miso soup. And you'll have a good time. Because eating and being happy eating is one of the happiest things that anybody can ever do. But knowing how to make food that makes people happy is an even more fun thing to do. And I have fun all the time because I know how to make a lot of really delicious things. And I'm going to share them all with you. What good is it if I'm the only one that knows? Now you're going to know too. <laughs>